the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. You've joined us this morning on uh, what is a bit of a unique Sunday, not just because we're not in our uh, usual location, uh, but we are doing what we call our fifth Sunday question and answer, our fifth Sunday Q&A. And what that means is whenever there are five Sundays on a calendar month, which happens about three or four times a year, uh, I feel like it almost always happens in January, um, we, uh, instead of preaching a normal sermon, uh, I field questions. That's probably not the right word. I answer questions that have been submitted in advance. And uh, if you are visiting with us for the first time, uh, thank you for uh, joining us. I'm glad you found us here uh, at the Embassy Suites. And if you are uh, interested in learning more about our church, uh, we have kind of a a typical sermon that I would preach on any given Sunday uh, on our website. So you can check that out or just come back and visit us next week. Uh, we will be back at the, in the cafeteria of Burlingame High School, which is not too far from here. But again, these have been submitted in advance. Uh, if it happens, if you have uh, further questions about anything I say this morning, or another question pops up, or as inevitably happens, uh, you're thinking, oh, I was going to submit this question, but I didn't have time or forgot. Again, put them on the appropriate card or scrap of paper uh, in the offering box in the back, or uh, you can... Um, just email me, and I'll make sure to do my best to fit that in next time we have a Q&A, which I think is sometime in the spring. The first question is uh, very appropriate, uh, given uh, what we've just celebrated. How does God view the celebration of Christmas in light of the fact that Christmas and its traditions have pagan origins? Does celebrating Christmas dishonor God? Are we trying to honor Him in a way that He does not want uh, in parentheses, as with Cain offering the wrong kind of sacrifice. Uh, this is a, a, a good question, and I think it uh, often comes up, obviously, this time of year, uh, leading up to Christmas. There are a lot of um, uh, books and articles and blogs, especially they'll, they'll start popping up on your uh, social media news feeds during this time of year, uh, because there are uh, Christians, there are uh, theologians, there are pastors uh, who have dug deep into the roots of a lot of our Christmas traditions and have actually <clears throat> said, because of this, this, and this, um, this is not a good thing for, for Christians in desiring to honor God and worship God to do. Now, uh, I'm assuming we all just celebrated Christmas. Um, maybe some of you are getting nervous about what I'm about to say. Let me start and ease any tension there might be by saying that I celebrated Christmas with my family as I've, I've done every year. But uh, we're not going to be able to get into specifics um, with, with every uh, element uh, that has traditionally been used in, in, in Christmas celebrations uh, for decades, um, but I'll do my best to generally answer this question. I want to start with uh, the person who wrote this question his comparison to Cain offering the wrong kind of sacrifice. 
And the reason I want to start there is because there is no straightforward verse or passage where we're going to find do not celebrate Christmas or celebrate Christmas but not with a tree or don't celebrate in December or anything like that. And so I appreciate that the person who wrote this question uh, brought it back to something biblical in comparison, though not directly related to how we celebrate Christmas, uh, because that's where we always want to start. Uh, we want to start with Scripture. And so I'm going to start as the found, a biblical foundation uh, with Cain's sacrifice. When you go back, and, and I think um, not everyone, but those who address uh, that Christians or say, propose that Christians should not celebrate Christmas, often bring something like this up, Cain's uh, sacrifice. And I believe one of the reasons they do that is for, for two ends of the spectrum. On one, clearly, Cain was punished, and uh, you know, God did not accept his sacrifice. And so uh, that's a good understanding of Christmas for Christians. That is a sacrifice. It is a worship. It's not just a social thing. But I believe the other end of the spectrum that, that some people like to bring this up is that it's general enough that we can kind of say what we want about that wrong sacrifice. We are never told explicitly why God did not regard Cain's offering but regarded Abel's. We're not told the specifics. Uh, many say that it was the wrong type of offering, but that's actually never explicit in the Scriptures. Here's what we are told about that situation. Number one, we are told that he was evil, but Abel was righteous. Okay? Hebrews 11.4, 1 John 3.12 mentioned that. Second, what we are told in general and applies to Cain's offering is that offerings are not automatic. What I mean is um, we don't just do this and God is pleased. We don't just go to church and God is pleased. We don't just pray and God is pleased. I don't just preach a sermon and then God is pleased, even if it's biblically accurate. Quite the opposite. God looks at the heart and faith matters. Obviously, having a right heart but disobeying Scripture is wrong, right? You can't say, yeah, with the right heart, uh, misinterpreting, of course, I had the right heart and I wanted to glorify God by going and killing all these uh, non-Christians, that doesn't honor God because you may have had the right attitude, though misguided, but you have disobeyed God's command not to murder, not to hate. Okay? But God does look at the heart, and this is specifically, uh, especially important uh, when we're talking about gray areas. Right? There's a lot of gray areas, um, not just on, on moral things like is dating, should I date? You know, physical boundaries in dating, a lot of gray areas. Drinking, gray area. And then you can even talk about practical decisions or gray areas, right? Do I go to this school or this school? It's a gray area. God doesn't explicitly say, you know, you should go to UCLA and not USC, right? Obviously, you know to go to UCLA and not USC, but that's not in Scripture, okay? I'm a Bruin. I'm just joking. That's, that's a bias there. Um, so God looks at the heart. Now, obviously, in situations like that, like picking a school, there are other factors that may be black and white, right? Well, this school is really good. I'm going to have a good job, and it's overseas, but there is no church that I can attend uh, reasonably uh, without driving further than I would drive on a Sunday morning. Well, then I think the decision becomes a little clear for you, right? 
four years without a church or however long you're going to be at that school, the decision becomes clear, right? But purely looking at gray areas, and so back to the celebration of Christmas. The debate about whether Christians should celebrate Christmas uh, has actually been debated in the church for hundreds of years. This is not a, a new thing. Maybe you're just more aware of it if you are aware of it because of the internet, social media, things like that. The most often cited reason that we should not, as Christians, celebrate Christmas is because of the pagan traditions or the pagan roots. Uh, Even with that, however, though a lot of people would like to tell you that it is, even the pagan traditions or the roots of our traditions in Christmas are not clear. Now, to make an argument against the celebration of Christmas, people will tell you, oh, yes, it's very clear that this was celebrated in this pagan uh, religion or this, you know, worship of this idol. But most of them, we, we don't know where they came from, okay? Um, now, there is mention of things like holly and candles and bells in pagan traditions. But again, we don't know if those started as Christian traditions first and then the pagans adopted it. And then even if you look at our modern world in the United States, there's a lot that we do as Christians, even sayings that have been adopted by the pagan world. Uh, a lot of some of your most famous uh, sayings and cliches, if you dig deep, actually come from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Okay? Um, even famous songs, some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, Even if they do have pagan traditions, it doesn't mean that we can't use them to glorify God, okay? We do this in other areas. There are Christian cults. There's the Catholic Church. Uh, They use grape juice for communion. That doesn't mean we can't, okay? They use certain bread. I mean, you go to, uh, you know... CBD, Christian book distributors, or, you know, Christian bookstores, or even brick-and-mortar bookstores, a lot of them are selling Catholic stuff and Protestant stuff, and a lot of the stuff we use both, the communion cups, the communion trays, you know, the the same thing, right? Um, Yoga has very pagan origins, right? Even the, the word namaste is very pagan. That doesn't mean you're in sin for doing downward dog, okay? Um, However, there are many uh, Christmas traditions that actually come from the Bible. The star on the tree is is Christian, the star of Bethlehem. Uh, The candles were started because Jesus is light of the world, okay? So there there are a lot of uh, religious, even a lot of the Uh, Some of, I should say, some of the reformers started some of these traditions uh, as well, such as the candles. We now use electric lights. Um, You know, they would actually put lit candles on trees. I've always wondered how that works, okay? Because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure back then, too, they didn't have a plastic water trough that they put their tree in to keep it wet, right? I, anyways, if you guys know how they kept from their house from burning down. Anyways, um, so there are a lot of biblical. Uh, a precedent for these uh, Christmas traditions as well. Now, I will say this. If you have a conviction as a Christian 
that you should not celebrate Christmas, then that is your right and you should follow your conscience. But you cannot impose that on other Christians and you need to be careful that you don't twist Scripture to justify your reasoning. Okay? Uh, keep in mind Romans 14, 4 through 6, if you turn there. And this is specifically in the context of different feasts and celebrations. And that's why I'm bringing it up, uh, that the pagans would celebrate and then some people would still celebrate them as Christians. Romans 14, 4 through 6. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That's what it is. You need to be convinced. Conscience. Verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not... Uh, for the Lord, he does not eat and give thanks to God. So either way, if you choose to celebrate it or you choose to celebrate it in a different way than other people or you choose not to, make sure it's for the Lord, as with everything, okay? Um, so are we trying to honor him in a way that he does not want? Uh, all I can say is I know that God wants our hearts. And so uh, even the things, he, as I mentioned earlier, even the things he does prescribe is not honoring to him if our hearts are not right. And so I think that's the basic uh, principle. Psalm 51, I'll read 16 through 19. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I, I would give it. Right? This is David who was in the sacrificial system. You are not pleased with burnt offering. How could he say that? There, there's so much of the Old Testament that says this is exactly what God wants. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Remember, this is his repentance over his sin with Bathsheba. Verse 18, by your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay? So he's saying, I know you want the heart. In this particular situation, he's, David is acknowledging he I know, God, that I can burn, you know, sacrifice all the bulls you want, but unless I repent, it doesn't mean anything to you. Now, that's not the situation here, uh, but the same principle applies, right? God desires the heart. So even if you have good reason intellectually and historically to not celebrate Christmas, if your heart is not doing it for God's glory and as an act of worship, then that decision really, really doesn't matter, Okay. Um, so I think this is a good reminder that we need to make sure our hearts are focused. And I know um, a lot of times as Christians we get frustrated um, because uh, there are uh, you know, traditions we follow that can get us to lose sight of Christ, right? Uh, fighting lines uh, all the way from Black Friday through Christmas Eve and you know, buying gifts and getting stressed out with decorating and having family over and you know, dealing with, uh, you know, the, the, all the cliches, you know, uh, the drunk uncle who comes over or whatever it is, right? There's a lot of stress and things like that. And so make sure we, we worship uh, at Christmas time and our focus is right. All right. Question number two. <clears throat> Jesus often refers to himself in the third person when talking about himself. Uh, is the correct interpretation of this that he is speaking as God? 
more than as the, quote, son of man? Or is he paraphrasing what the prophets have written? Okay. So when you read the Gospels, when he talks to him, uh, talks about himself, not to himself, talks about himself, although technically when he's praying to the Father, is he, anyways. So when he's referring to himself in the third person, what is that? Um, well, that phrase, son of man, as you know, if you've read the Gospels, he refers to himself as the son of man. It's actually the most common way, uh, if you count up his references to himself, it's the most common way Jesus refers to himself <coughs> Excuse me, in the Gospels. The son of man is actually a messianic title, and it comes all the way from Daniel 7. So if you want to look there, and so you can see how as the fulfillment of prophecy as the Messiah, as we talked about at our Christmas service uh, last Sunday, you can see how in talking about himself, emphasizing he is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the one. So in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, uh, this is where we uh, see it. Okay, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. Remember we talked about this last week, right? This is the eternal king, the eternal kingdom, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, okay? A son of man we know also is a reference to his humility as well as, of course, his humanity, right? Son of man, he came as a human being, right? Um, and when you look forward to eschatological pro uh, uh, promises and prophecies, uh, the phrase son of man also has uh, end times or the fancy word eschatological significance as well. So that's why he uh, refers to him as son of man, which is also why he refers to himself in the third person to emphasize who he is, to uh, connect his uh, original main audience at the time the Jews who are waiting for the Messiah, that indeed Jesus is saying, I am the one, this is the one. Okay? Question number three. I hear a lot of Christians when they're going through trials or faced with temptation say, quote, I rebuke you, Satan. What does this mean? Um, we actually find that, well, we don't find that particular phrase, we find that idea in Zechariah 3.2, where we see the Lord saying to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, right, um, through a prophet. And that's important because it wasn't the human being saying, I rebuke you. It was the Lord saying he rebukes Satan, and even the prophet repeating, the Lord rebuke you, okay? Um, I think that the distinction there is obvious. Um, some, uh, in using this phrase or justifying this phrase today, uh, would reference Christ's response to Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4 when he was tempted in the wilderness. Um, in Mark chapter 1, an unclean spirit correctly names Jesus. Remember this, we, we have these, these, these scenes in the gospel where Obviously, the, the demons know who he was, even though the people had not yet known. 
Uh, they say he knows Jesus is the Holy One of God, and Jesus rebukes him, but it's, it's a little different. There he's rebuking him and telling him to keep quiet. Um, if you're familiar with kind of the timeline of Jesus' ministry and the opening up of his public ministry, there was a certain amount of time, even it, as an adult, where he said the time is not yet for everyone to know. Now, we only have a record of about three and a half years of his ministry or so, right? But um, there, even in that short period of time, there was a time where he said, don't tell anyone yet, don't tell anyone Remember, he would heal people and say, go straight to the temple, don't tell anyone, because it wasn't time for everyone to know. So that's why he, in Mark 1, that's why he rebukes that demon. It's very different than how people use it today, okay? So what about us? Should we do this? What does it mean? Is it effective? Um, The first thing you need to know is we are never in Scripture, as Christians, as followers of Christ, we're never commanded We are never even encouraged. We are never even given a model of Christians rebuking Satan. And that's not because the devil is never mentioned. The the devil, Satan, is mentioned quite often in Scripture, um, but we're never told to rebuke him. We're told to resist, as we saw in um, 1 Peter, and we know that extends to temptation. Uh, We know we are to flee temptation. We are to stand firm in Christ. Um, The apostles were given the spiritual gift of being able to cast out demons, but they were never given the ability to bind demons, right? And there's a difference between actually casting out a demon of a demon-possessed person than just kind of rebuking, which... um, well, we'll get to exactly what people mean by that in, in, a, in a minute, okay? Um, again, we're told to resist him in James 4.7. Uh, we saw recently in 1 Peter 5.8 in relation to being sober spirit and on the alert to resist him. Um, and so when people, and this is going to be, different people are going to do it for different reasons. But the majority of people who say they rebuke Satan and they'll do it like, uh, directly to him, right? They'll say, I rebuke you, Satan, okay? You might have heard this in sermons. You might have heard this in a prayer meeting. You might have heard this, just someone in there just have, you know, praying before me or something like that. Um, and those people obviously think they have the power to rebuke Satan or to bind Satan. Um, they do not. You do not. Satan does not need to listen to you. You have no authority over Satan, okay? You have no authority over demons. And you definitely can't bind him in the sense of stopping him from doing evil or to stop him from tempting. We don't have that ability. We don't have that power. We don't have that authority, okay? Um, God does. And what that means is, I, you know, uh, I believe people who say that or do, or do that, although it is not biblical, uh, they're, they're well-meaning. That doesn't make it okay. But they're well-meaning in that they're trying to uh, get Satan out of their lives or out of someone's life. Um, we don't even have the power. If you, should you come across a demon-possessed person, which, you know, let me step away from the pulpit, I believe is very rare in the first world. I believe it's more common in developing countries. I believe it's rarer in places like 
uh, first world countries in Europe, obviously North America, uh, because we're not fooled by that. The unbelieving world is not fooled by that. They're not, you know, they say that person's a drunk, that person's, you know, is clinically, uh, mentally unstable. Um, and frankly, it's just not needed here, right? When, when you look at how much sin is legal, how much sin is, is promoted by the majority uh, of, of the voters in America, um, you know, things like uh, abortion and, and gay marriage and, and all these types of things, uh, you know, adultery is not illegal in this country. Adultery, so the act of adultery is not illegal. Premarital sex is not illegal, right? And so uh, these things are not just allowed in our country. Uh, they are given uh, legal protection, and they are encouraged by the most of society. So, you know, why have demon possession to lead people astray, right? The, we're, you know, we live in a world system that already has our culture. So um, uh, that being said, if you do come across someone who is demon-possessed, you do not have the authority to rebuke that demon and get that out of that person. Um, there is a way to get a demon as a Christian for you uh, to get a demon out of a demon-possessed person, and there's only one way. If you've ever encountered a truly demon-possessed person, you know it, it often takes uh, much effort. And again, you will probably never encounter this. I'm just telling you this because it does happen, and very rarely, okay? Even people who have huge ministries spanning the whole world, right? These celebrity pastors that you know of, even they would say they've never encountered it or they've only encountered it once. And there's only one way to get that demon out because a demon cannot coexist in a human body with Jesus Christ. So if you can get through to that person and no longer speak to the demon but get to that person... Um, that actual human being, share the gospel with them, and they choose to accept Jesus Christ, that demon will instantly leave. But again, that's if you can get through that person and if that person accepts Christ. That's the only way, okay? Uh, rebuking Satan and doing it too often is actually dangerous because it puts... Let me give you a general hermeneutical principle. That's just the tools of we use to the science of studying the Scripture, and then a sp specific principle. In general, in your Christian life, in your devotions, in your thought life, in my preaching, you don't want to overemphasize things that the Scriptures do not. And you don't want to underemphasize the things that Scripture does. So I emphasize the epistles. I emphasize holy living. I emphasize Christ's life. I don't emphasize his childhood because we have very little about that, right? Uh, I will mention and preach about demons, but I don't, that's not the majority of my preaching because that's a very small part of the scriptures, and even the way they are addressed is more resist him, you know, narratives, Satan did this, you know, God is sovereign over Satan, right? The story of Job before the story of Job. Right? Or even just telling us that, you know, prince of the power of the air, he's in control of our world system, things like that. And so you men mention that and you focus on that. So when, uh, when you uh, talk to someone who's just uh, at a church or they themselves are just 90%, you, 
even 50% of what they talk about or preach about are angels, holy angels, or demons, there's just a wrong focus because the Scriptures need to dictate what we focus on. Uh, So that's why it's dangerous um, to overly focus on simply what the Bible does not focus on. There are people uh, that I know that focus more on the devil than on their own spiritual walks. And what happens is twofold. They're more concerned about being this warrior for God, hurting the devil, than they are about their walk with God, and they've confused the two. Um, uh, And secondly, it's just... uh, well, I, that, I think that encompasses both of what I wanted to say, the two dangers, right? You're just too much focus, and then you're not focused with your walk with God. Um, this is often done in, in charismatic circles, um, and there are even people who would actually uh, pray to Satan. Um, and in fact, when you think about it, when you are praying to God and then switch and say, and Satan, I rebuke you, you're actually praying to Satan. And that's just, you know communicating with Satan, whether it's a rebuke or whatever it is, that's just not a path you want to go down, okay? Um, Again, just for your own walk and your own focus, it's not, you know, I think we we often, because we're bombarded with it, especially if you like horror movies, we start thinking, oh, we're going to, you know, going to float in the air and start spinning or vomiting or walking up the stairs backwards, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, that's, you're not going to do that just because you say, I rebuke you, Satan, or uh, because you celebrate Halloween or stuff like that. You still have the Holy Spirit. Those types of things uh, just won't suddenly happen to you, okay? All right. Well, I'm saying don't focus on Satan, and I spent the most time on that question. So let's move on. Uh, question number four. Is the Bible really without error? Is the Bible trustworthy? Uh, yes and yes. Okay, question number five. No, <laughs> there's more. Is the Bible trustworthy? How can we handle these types of questions when others ask, uh, as well as being reassured in our own faith? All good questions. This is a really good question because think about it. As you sit here as a Christian, everything you believe about God, all your doctrine, all your theology is from the Bible. Okay. Well, you know, I believe the gospel. Where does the gospel come from? The Bible. Right? Well, do you believe he raised from dead? Do you believe what we just celebrated, you know, a few days ago is true that the baby born in a manger? Yes. How do you know that? The Bible. Well, I know because well, I know I believe the Bible because I have the Holy Spirit. How do you know you have the Holy Spirit? The Bible says so. So you understand why atheists, not just yeah, I'm an atheist, don't talk to me about God, but Atheists who engage in debates on the public stage with Christian theologians, okay, the intellectuals, they don't attack the existence of God. They don't attack archaeological facts. They attack the Bible because they know if you, if you can disprove the Bible, you disprove everything, right? Um, and that's why when we say someone's liberal, we don't say, you know, the liberal Christian doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. No, they do, but they're liberal because they don't believe in other peripheral issues like roles in the family or uh, what gender all elders and pastors should be. 
Because if you can find a back door, right, and just put a little crack in the wall, guess what? It doesn't matter if you believe that the, the rest of the wall is, is solid. You've already made a crack, and that's your way through. And you say, well, isn't it just the gospel? Why do we fight tooth and nail about women's roles? Why do we, you know, fight tooth and nail about, yes, David and Bathsheba actually happened. It's not just a myth. It's not just a fictitious. Why? Why does it matter if it doesn't affect us for that very reason? We need to preserve every word of the Scriptures. Uh, you, you, you can't tell me you'll be okay uh, this winter, right? It, it's supposed to be a 50s this week, right? Which if you're from California, you're, it's freezing for us, okay? I, I don't know. I mean... From Scotland or something, you're probably warm right now. I don't know. But we are freezing right now here. And um, I don't think you'd be okay with you said, no, all our windows are fine except there's one bedroom window that has a, a you know, there's no glass there. Because it's just that one, you know, no, you just, you know, it just, we need to protect it all. So um, that's why this this question is so good, especially in our more conservative circles, uh, we don't believe in dreams and visions. We don't interpret God through our experiences. It is all from the Bible. And the two terms that we would use uh, theologically, and I only bring this up uh, to sound smart. No, I bring this up because when engaging with other Christians, even Christians who don't believe in these things, these are the terms we're going to use, so it helps us be on the same page. You probably heard the terms inerrancy and infallibility. It simply means, inerrancy simply means that the Bible has no errors, no mistakes. It is fully true. It is completely trustworthy forever. There are two ways to handle these types of questions and assure ourselves to know that the Bible is truly inerrant, internal and external. Uh, Internal, meaning we know the Bible is true because of the claims of the Bible itself. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. I'm going to give you two passages. These are the two primary passages. Yes, even if you went to the most academically challenging seminary in the world, whatever that is, these are the two passages they would start with when you study the theology of the Bible. Okay? 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, the Scriptures are enough for everything that we need as believers. Okay? Again, Scripture doesn't tell me what school I should go to for college. Yes, but it gives you the principles and the thinking to help you make the right decision. Okay? Um, That word inspired, inerrancy and infallibility rest on inspiration. We believe that the scriptures were inspired by God. Did Paul write? Yes. Did Paul write to Timothy? Yes. Did Peter write? Yes. Did Moses write? Yes. But they were inspired by God. The Holy Spirit was the author. They just wrote it down. I really like that word inspired in uh, in 2 Timothy 3.16. It literally means in the Greek, God breathed. God breathed out the Scriptures. You can't really find 
any word, I think, that shows the closeness of God and his, his word coming from him than that, you know. There's no Greek word that says ripped out of his heart or anything like that. He breathed it out. It came from him. So what is inspiration? I'm going to read a, a theological definition. It is the work of the Holy Spirit by which without setting aside their personalities and literary or human faculties, God so guided the authors of Scripture as to enable them to write exactly the words which convey his truth to men. And that's why you do see different writing styles from the different writers of Scripture because the Holy Spirit superintended and inspired through them but still used uh, their grammar and their personalities but to convey His truth to men. Something you need to understand too is the Bible is old. And so a lot of the stuff that we get that's confusing. It's confusing because we speak a different language at a different time and in a different place, right? Uh, again, other countries that speak English speak it differently than we do, right? And even in, in the U.S., if you go back 100 years, right, they spoke it differently than we do today. So even if you're here last week, you say, like, why did they say Joseph? Why didn't they just say Mary? Why, why did they say, you know, in her genealogy, it's confusing because now we think we don't have Mary's genealogy in Luke 3 because it says Joseph. You have to dig deep to know that this was actually Mary's mother and not, or Mary's father and not Joseph's. Why didn't do that? Because in that culture, that's what they did. It would have been clear for us, but not for the original recipients, Okay. Uh, and then we have 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, which is the other a key passage on the inerrancy of Scripture, inspiration, and infallibility. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Because know this first of all, foundationally, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. That reminds us there is one interpretation, one correct interpretation. Right? Regardless of what your pastor may say, there's one intended meaning that God had. And then verse 21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Then you have other passages that don't speak directly to this, but are affirmed by Jesus himself. You don't need to turn there. Matthew five seventeen through 18. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Matthew five eighteen. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Literally, uh, not even a yoth. Right? The letter Y in Hebrew. You know what it looks like? The smallest letter, it looks like our apostrophe. That's how small it is. Okay? Maybe another line, it's you know, more like this. It's got an angle to it. Okay? And so Jesus is saying, not even the, the, the tiniest letter, Yod, and not even the smallest period, right, which they had, um, will, will pass away. And then John 10.35, Scripture cannot be broken. So that's internal. 
Say, I don't like internal because unbelievers will say it is circular reasoning. You Christians are using circular reasoning. How do I put this? I willingly, gladly, and confidently would die for my faith knowing full well that is based on circular reasoning. I have no problem with that. Why do you know the Bible is true? Because the Bible says it's true. Okay? Now I know that may not, uh, uh, it, it might not make others happy. So there is external evidence. There's a lot more. I'm going to be brief. There are a lot of ancient manuscripts. Now what you need to know is when we talk about inspiration, we're only talking about the autographs, right? Not Jesus' signature. Autographs meaning the original documents. Only those were inspired, okay? My published in the last few years English Bible is not inspired. Only the originals that actually came from the ink of Moses and Paul and all the others was inspired. We have many, many copies, even ancient copies that we call manuscripts, ancient manuscripts. And when, and you can assume, rightly so, that many people have studied these manuscripts. Enemies of the gospel and friends of the gospel have studied these ancient manuscripts. They're all over. You've probably seen some of them in museums. There is an incredibly high degree of accuracy in the copying and preservation of these manuscripts down through the ages. In fact, the New Testament alone has more early copies to support its accuracy than any other ancient writing that we have in existence today. Christian, spiritual, or secular. We also hold to what's called uh, a doctrine called uh, derived inspiration. Not direct inspiration, but derived inspiration. And what that means is the copies, as I said earlier, are not inspired but they are inspired to the extent that they reproduce the originals. Does that make sense? Right? Um, You've seen this funny meme. I'm going to get it wrong. It says, I think it says in quotes, do not believe everything you read on the Internet, and the quote is from Abraham Lincoln or something like that. Right? Obviously, he didn't write that. No Internet. Right? But if I quoted, and historians were say, indeed, he did say those, those words four score and seven, seven years ago, we know, uh, am I Abraham Lincoln? No. Is that author, that, that biographer, Abraham Lincoln? No. But are those the words of Abraham Lincoln, even though it was printed on a printing press that came hundreds of years later? Yes, to the degree that you are accurately quoting him. So that's what derived inspiration is. And we know what the original said based on these manuscripts for over 99% of the Bible. I believe the accurate count is 99.9% of the originals we have accurately passed down through the ages. And you say, well, you're talking about inspiration. You're talking about all this stuff that you've talked about today. 0.01% is still something true. And this is very important. No doctrine 
hangs on a textual variant between the copies. There are, look, if you go to seminary, if you're like me and most of my classmates, not all, but most, textual variants, that's the most boring, you're going to be so bored. Because these ancient manuscripts, they're talking about, well, this manuscript says this, but this manuscript says this, and so we need to figure out what's right. And it's extra boring because, again, no doctrine changes based on either interpretation. For example, some of the people who copied accidentally put an extra zero. So your faith in, in 2020 is not changed based on whether it was 1,200 soldiers or 1,196 soldiers that fought with Israel, right? These are the kinds of variants that we find. You don't find variants on our doctrine. You don't find variants on Jesus, Mary, Joseph, you know, Son of God, Son of Man. Uh, you don't, you f- don't find variants on male, female, children obey, slaves obey, uh, Holy Spirit. You don't find, you know, casting out demons. You don't find variants on any of that stuff, okay? Um, Another thing that's really basic, I probably should have started this with the external evidence. The Bible was written over 1,500 years, over a span of 1,500 years, and by 40 different men, and still there are no disagreements. And they weren't all in the same room together, okay? They were scattered all over and over 1,500 years. You're not going to find that with anything else, okay? Um, Never contradicts itself. So how can we assure ourselves with all of this that I've just said? But it really comes down to faith. It comes down to faith. Trusting in God's character applies to his word, and it's trusting that God's character is inseparable from his word. Titus 1-2, God cannot lie. Not just will not. He will not because he cannot. Okay? I will not fly by flapping my arms because I cannot. Okay? He cannot lie. John 14, 6, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And you know a frequent formula in the Old Testament, thus says or thus saith who? The Lord. Okay? Uh, we believe also that God desires to preserve his text. Obviously, he wants people all the way through a second coming and all the way through end times to know his word. It's the doctrine of preservation, that though not inspired, we believe that God is preserving his text over all of these years. Uh, After that, understanding preservation, we can look at prophecies, right? You look at prophecies in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled. it, It isn't just Christians uh, who say like, no, 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 who argue, no, there was a Babylonian ca- captivity. No, historians tell you there's a Babylonian captivity. Everyone knows that. All these, all these, you know, all these things that are recorded and all the prophecies, not all of them, but the prophecies that have come true have come true. So, that, you know, that proves you don't have that anywhere else. And so even that alone you can look down in history. Um, also, is the dynamic impact of the Bible over thousands of years. 
it has to be God's word to literally influence the millions of people it has influenced, that their lives have been changed. And, and we don't see it as much because of where we are in history, right? But some of these major movements, you, you understand, some of you have watched these movies, read these stories. The abolishment of slavery was because of someone's Christ, uh, Christian biblical convictions, right? Uh, uh, there, there's no, you don't find any other source of morality that would do something like that, okay? Um, prison reform, so that, I know it's not worldwide, but so for the most of the developing world, prisoners are not treated like animals, right? My, my now pastor, my old classmate, who was a police officer, then a Secret Service agent, he says uh, they call it uh, three hots and a cot, right? And I think our, uh, you know, there's one here, so maybe you can ask him later. But I think a lot, a lot of times uh, the law enforcement are frustrated that we uh, treat our prisoners so well. Three hot meals and a, and a soft bed, but... You know, the, that's a Christian did that. Like, look, we need to stop putting chains where it's almost taking off their arms, you know, because they're dragged and beating them and not feeding them, just giving them moldy bread. Is a Christian who did that, right? Feeding the homeless, homeless shelters, orphanages, all that. The, the Bible has changed the world, and obviously through people getting saved. I think sometimes because we are Christians and we read the Bible so much, we can become so familiar with this book that we forget the impact it has had on the world and how prophecies have been fulfilled. And so we ask, like, how can we assure ourselves or others that this, this book is, is real and authentically God's Word, right? It, it's kind of like uh, you, you drive in, you know, a nice Mercedes for five years and you're like, how do I convince people that this is a nice car? Look, the guy that's, that's driving the, the beater Honda from 1985, he knows you have a nice car. You're just used to it, right? You got crumbs in the car seats and all that stuff, right? But other people looking, we get, you see what I mean? We get so familiar that we forget the value of what we have that it really speaks uh, for itself, okay? Um, I have one more. I'm going to save it for next time. We're over time. Uh, submit your questions. Uh, if you have them, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, the wisdom from your word, the wisdom from uh, theologians over the years who have studied your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you for this church and their desire to know more, their desire to uh, share their faith, their desire to uh, uh, honor you. And, and grow and, and even defend the faith. Uh, Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would continue to help us to have inquiring minds, help us to search the scriptures, help us to rely on fellowship to learn more. I pray that these questions and these answers would never just be an intellectual exercise, but would sink into our hearts and grow in our worship uh, of our God. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.